0: And welcome to AJC Passport, brought to you by AJC, the diplomatic arm of the Jewish community. Each week, we'll chat with experts from around the world to help you better understand the week's headlines and what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. Last month, an off-duty Israeli police officer shot and killed Solomon Tekka, an Ethiopian Israeli teenager. The exact circumstances are still unclear, but Solomon's death has roiled the Ethiopian Israeli community and Israeli society as a whole. We're joined today by Penina Agenyahu. Penina came to Israel at a young age from Ethiopia and today works as a leading agent of social change in Israel, as the Interfaces and Synergy Director in the Strategic Planning Unit of the Jewish Agency for Israel. Penina, thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're welcome.
0: Um, what do we know about the events that led to the death of Solomon Tekka?
1: So it's a bit um, confusing at the moment. You have testimonies from both sides that tell in different stories. Uh, some people from uh, the Cuban community will say that the police uh, officer that was there uh, is trying to hide some testimonies of some uh, data that can actually uh, put them down to jail. On the other hand, there are some testimonies that I personally even heard the day after which you can't hear them anymore. They not exist. And there is uh, a really... I don't know how to express it, but there is a, a notion and a feeling inside of the community that they're not making the right justice, that the police are not really looking in all the uh, criteria on all the testimonies, all the voices and they basically easier for them to take the policeman's side but if we want to look you know at the fact at the moment the fact is that the policeman was in that area of uh, playground where there was four or five Ethiopian teens that was playing together sitting outside and he was there not with uniform not on duty with his wife and kids and he said that he saw them yelling in one kid or even beating a kid and he came to help this boy, and he asked him, what are you doing? And this group of teens told him not to uh, innovate to this um, agreement. It's not his business. They didn't know he's a policeman. And the policeman said, I'm a policeman. He took out his tag. And then the factors started being different and from different sides. So their side said that they saw them throw a stone to, um, because they were concerned about their life. and and that he pulled the gun automatically and shot out. And he will say that they were throwing many stones on him and he was in risk of his life and he was protecting himself and that's why he was shooting the gun. Now, no one really knows exactly what happened until today. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is also because not everyone is telling the full picture of it, the full story. And this is another layer to what the community is expressing regarding to police profiling or to the discrimination by the police in Israel.
0: And what form has that community expression taken? Have there been protests?
1: They were protesting, of course. And I feel this protest was much different from the previous one. I don't know if you follow the one in 2015. And the one even a couple months ago, six months ago, there was another case of a teen that was uh, shot by a policeman. This time, uh, the protest was much more intense and organized by the youth, by the younger generation, not even my generation. We, the generation, you know, the born in Ethiopia, but we came here in early age, and they communicate the entire protest through the WhatsApp group. It's uh, WhatsApp. is like the text uh, application in Israel that everyone uses, not through the media. And the way they did it, it was uh, with non-leadership on the field. You didn't have any leaders to negotiate with him in the protest or to talk to him. If you were police or the, you know, the, the press or the media, it was all run by youth and through the WhatsApp group by themselves. And they didn't communicate what they want or what they're fighting for. The only message that they were trying to pass is that the society here need to wake up. There is a police profiling and something has to be done into this policy of how the police look at them as black teens in Israel. Uh, and for me, by the way, uh, as someone that been in many protests of the community in the past, it was very different because the voice here is was uh, a different voice of uh, of a different generation in our community, but also because it's get to the point that they are very very uh, depressed and they lost their trust. They lost their Trust in any institution, and they don't feel they can trust anyone, even their uh, friends that are not Ethiopians. Mm. Um, and I feel that that's the terrible thing about it. I mean, it's terrible. Of course, it's terrible, and it's uh, mm-hmm. hard and painful that uh, a family lost their son. But I think it's also terrible and painful that there is a, a huge group of, uh, of a generation that was born in Israel, and they see themselves Israel is the first. Now they see themselves Ethiopian first and they feel they, you know, um, are out of, outside of the, the entire society here. And they're not motivated to do other things. They feel they, no one cares about them.
0: There's almost like a reverse assimilation going on where at the very beginning when the Ethiopian Aliyah to Israel first took place, it was, you know, these are Jews, they should be welcomed. It's great that Ethiopians are here. And now there's kind of a a sorting almost like either Ethiopians are moving themselves or the rest of Israeli society are moving Ethiopians kind of outside of the mainstream. Is that what you're saying?
1: I'm saying that's the feeling. That's the notion Mm. now among the young generation. I can tell that through my generation, me and my peers and my friends, we communicate a lot also through the WhatsApp group. We all feel that, you know, in some cases we need to not negotiate, but go and communicate that with the with the young generation, tell them that, you know, it, this is still our land. We came here to stay. We came here to be part of the society, to be part of this country, and we can't just give up now. And DAFCA, you know, because of the case here, we need to fight back and see how we can fight ignorance in Israel or, or racism and taking action in our side and now wait to other institutions or policymakers to take an action for us. But instead of us, I feel there is a lot of anger and a lot of pain, which is okay and legitimate uh, to have among the youth. And that's why it also becomes so violent in the end of the protests. They've been there six hours outside. I was there in the first two hours in the protest in Tel Aviv. It was very quiet. Very, you know, relaxed protest. And they spoke beautifully. The people, you know, the young generation spoke beautifully about what they care, what's bothered them, what's making them anger, what's offended them. And then I feel that the anger was, you know, much stronger than what than other feelings when they were wow. out there. And you had teens and youths all over the country protesting and and uh, and stopping the, um, the 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 roads in Israel. And something didn't happen. I think the last time something like this happened was in the 17th, you know, with the Moroccan community in Israel that felt the same feeling with the Ashkenazi Jews in Israel.
0: Yeah. I think our listeners are somewhat familiar with the basics of the Ethiopian Aliyah, you know, two large waves, mostly in the 1980s and 1990s. Today, there are around 140,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel. So what does that experience look like more broadly? Is there an economic gap? Is there a social gap? You know, what, broadly speaking, is the Ethiopian experience in Israel?
1: Look, in my opinion, there is the success side of this community, and there's also the challenge. There's still many challenges. And I will say that the challenges today, as I see them, is um I will point out five challenges that I see. One of them is the skin color, which is out there. And I think we're not there enough to speak about it, to talk about it, or even educated about it. I feel like today the young generation here doesn't uh, do much in embracing and uh, the skin color is part of their uh, identity, and which is okay. And no one talks about it too much, but it's out there. And it's still a barrier because many times in Israel, as a minority, you may find yourself as the person that is standing for the entire community, even though you haven't done anything regarding to that. So even a kid that's born in Israel and is actually supposed to be an Israeli, you know what, I will give you an example with the young Jews in America. If a young Jew in uh, walk on a campus and there is BDS movement there or someone that boycotts Israel or Jewish people, and he doesn't want to be affiliated with that, he can take off the kippa or he can take off the Jewish star, and no one can relate him to this community, right? We don't have this privilege right. with the skin color. If, you know, a, a child born in Israel and he wants to himself Israeli, and only Israel, and this is his choice of identity... Um, and it will do everything through the, you know, the DNA of the typical Israeli, still people are going to look at them first as an Ethiopian. And it's a challenge, and it's something that we don't talk about at all in the education system or among ourselves in the society. The second challenge, in my opinion, that relates to this, it's that many times institutions in Israel, unfortunately, and even individuals will see ourselves, will see us and consider us as olim, new immigrant. And again, for kids that are born in Israel, that are born to educated parents like me, that already, you know, integrated the society and live here, to be considered as ole automatically, even though you, you're not and you're born here and you grow up here, it's, uh, it's not only offended, but it's put you in a, in a very low Side of the group you related to. So, especially in school system, for example, if the principal of the school has a special program for new immigrants, and you're going to pull out a kid, an Ethiopian kid, only because he looks Ethiopian, not because he's a new immigrant, something wrong happening here. Mm -hmm. Um, The third challenge is that our Judaism is still questionable in some sectors of the society. Some sectors in the society will never marry their kids with our kids because. They do not think still that we're Jewish or Jewish enough, uh, which is something that also relevant to other, you know, uh, part in Jewish uh, war, if it's, you know, conservative or from, and even the Russian community in Israel. But still for us, it's something that we struggle a lot with because it's a story or it's something that we've taken with us from the moment we arrived to Israel. That was part of the conversation when they brought us, that was part of the conversation when Rabbi Avada Yosef declared that we the lost Jew and we part of the Jewish people. And still you will believe as a person that went through all that for the last 35 years, that you get to the point that people will not question it, but people still question it. And I think the last challenge is the sense of belonging when you don't have this, in Israel, in you know, as a state that is so small and very intense and very complicated and very uh, diverse because every third person is a new emigrant in Israel. There is also an issue or challenge of belonging to which group you belong. So you belong to the Ethiopian community, you belong to the Israel society, you belong to the Jewish people, right? That's kind of the easy parts that you can identify with and belong to. But then, as you asked before... If there is also belonging through the demographic area you grow up in and the periphery side of, uh, of Israel, if there is kids that grew up in a neighborhood in Kirat Malachi, for example, or Rehovot or Netanya, where you have a major group of uh, Ethiopian uh, families, that's the place they feel most belonging. But that's also the place that doesn't let them get out from that circle of low socioeconomic level. Uh, low education uh, access, uh, et cetera. And then even if they want to feel they belong to the wider group or the wider society in Israel, it's hard for them to say that they're part of it because they always see only, uh, you know, the surrounding group that's close to them, which is the neighborhood they grow up in. So for some people uh, like me that grew up in a mixed neighborhood, you had some other models to look at and to be motivated for, and um, and you, I, I guess you could. It was easier for you to break the bear, the barrier and to get progress. But for kids who grew up in a neighborhood when it's 80 percent, 70 percent of the neighborhood are Ethiopian like you, and the majority of them, as my parents, coming from homes that the parents are not uh, educated in an academic level, but not you know, not even elementary school, that doesn't have the orientation and skills of, you know, even study, they can't, for example, be motivated or understand the value of higher education, for example. And if you grow up in a neighborhood when the majority of the older people, of the parents you see, are not employed, not working, because they can, because they don't have the exact skill and the right skills to work in the, in the workplace in Israel... What kind of a model you see in your life? What motivation you can have? How can you imagine your future? You can imagine a better future if that's what you see.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the only part where kids really get out of those neighborhoods and see a, a, a different or see a future, or see an opportunity for them to do something differently, it's when they reach to the Army Service and then they get mixed with other people from all over the state, And that's a great opportunity. That's really the great place uh, in the IDF service when you've been mixed with everyone and you see that there's other options in life. And you maybe heard from your uh, soldier sleeping next to you that he's planning or thinking about going to college or university and you dare to think about it or dream about it. And so this is like the challenge I see, but I also feel a lot of very optimistic side of our community. And that's because if you look at the statistic right now, we're talking about 145,000 Ethiopian Jews in Israel, which is less than 2% of the Jewish population in Israel. Mm -hmm. And still, uh, we have an increase of the number of employees in the public sector in the last, I would say, 10 years. We have, you know, two Knesset members who hopefully will be chosen again in the next election. We have two judges and more. And we have, I think, one of the most important part of uh, integration is a higher education. And only in the last, I'll say, five to seven years, maybe, maybe a little bit more, the education system in Israel, the Minister of Education, they was developing and implementing educational program about the Ethiopian community, which wasn't there before. As like when I was a child, I never... Uh, had any classes, even the history, the Israeli history classes that talk about, you know, the Cuban community or from where we came from, the history. And for many times people are, you know, around us just have assumption of us coming from Africa with nothing, you know, with no, you know, heritage or culture. Um, And I think that can fight ignorance if kids grow up in Israel And learning more about us and even, you know, in other communities like the Russian communities, et cetera, they understand better from where we come in our background and will be less ignorant and less assumption that based on color or based on the geographic area we came from.
0: Penina, that was a a really comprehensive and and incredibly enlightening answer. So thank you um, for helping us understand the Ethiopian experience a bit better. I want to come back to the issue, to the incident, to the death of Salman Tekka and ask, you know, in America, After a black person is killed by a cop, something that happens far too often, um, the right wing tends to be more likely to defend cops while the left wing tends to assume racism is the driving factor. Is this issue a politically divisive one in the same way in Israel? Can you kind of guess what someone will think about this based just on their political party?
1: So actually, it's interesting, because this time, I, I believe it's the only time that it's really opened up a discussion that was related a bit politically. I can't, I can, I mean, I didn't do any research on it to tell you that it's really divided by right and left wing here. But you could see by, you know, by the media, uh, let's say if like Makori Shon, which is a newsletter of the uh, national store tax in Israel, Writing a post about what happened with Salman Tukka is something that it's uh, that it's not racist and it's a case that just happened and and they say that the left wing was supporting and taking this uh, event to a racist uh, point because they want to destroy the government of today and they want to have uh, the left wing controlling. This is something that you didn't hear before and it's just happened now. Or you will see the tweet of Yair Netanyahu. Uh, the prime minister's son tweeting that it was uh, the left-wing protesting. The left-wing was pushing and leveraging the anger among the Ethiopian community, and they basically just used us in order to motivate us to uh, take down the government of today, because it's And they And they both, I think the both sides did that, because everyone knows in Israel that the majority of the older audience among the Ethiopian community vote Likud. And I think, you know, that was part of also the converse, the discussion. and yeah, But it wasn't there before. This time it was decided not politically, but it was more, I feel like there was more anger because the country was shut down for six hours. There was a lot of anger from the civilians in Israel. And they didn't care anymore what was the issue, what was the case. But we were protesting anymore. The conversation was more around how we dare to be violent or how we dare to shut down the country for six hours, and it's not our problem. Mm. And when the person say it's not our problem, it's your problem, you create a division, you create uh, segregation between two groups. And this time, it's us and them. Who's us and who's them? So now it's not a pain, it's not painful for the entire society because it's not what? Because it's not a white boy, Mm. because it's a black boy, so it's only belong to us. It's only painful to the black people. Only we need to care about it. And I think this is the hard questions. Uh, the people don't dare to ask, but it's showed you more and more and more separation between two groups. And in my opinion, at least, now it looks like there is more two groups as black and white, which wasn't a conversation like that before
0: in Israel. Hmm. Um- There's a really important point here, which is that there's something that Israel as a society as a whole needs to grapple with. And I would say like American Jewish lovers of Israel need to grapple with it as well. You know, Israel is so often and so unfairly accused of racism vis-a-vis the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, right, with wildly inaccurate words like genocide and apartheid thrown around baselessly so there's this almost visceral reaction I, I can speak for American Jews here there's this almost visceral reaction anytime racism is discussed there's this immediate urge to to prove that it's false to prove that Israel isn't really kind of you know institutionally racist etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. but you know looking at the death of Solomon Tekka and especially at the Ethiopian reaction to it it seems clear that like any country, Israel has a racism problem to grapple with. So how can we do that without giving ammunition to those people who hate Israel?
1: Well, I, I had to answer this question so many times this week. <laughs> um, I think it's okay you know, to criticize and say that there is racism here like in every other country in the world. And it doesn't mean that we have here a policymaker that are not a policymaker, sorry. It doesn't mean that we have policies of racism. It doesn't mean that we have, you know, policy that rules and policy that <laughs> separated black from white people on the street. It doesn't happen like that. But we do have, unfortunately, people that are racist, and people that have uh, motivates their work and they work in an institution that's supposed to be a public institution like a police department, and they motivated from assumption that based on you know very 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 low knowledge about who are the person in front of them, so they ignorant and they racist, and that's the problem that we have and this issue I think have every country have it. We can't be you know not, no one can tell us that we're worst in that case. I believe. The other thing is that we need to remember that this is a different conversation. It's We're not just black people that, you know, immigrate to here. We're Jewish black people. We came here to be part of this country and part of this Jewish people. and And the country wanted us to come also. It wasn't like one side love. It was two sides love. At least that's how we felt, you know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, but now the question is, Maybe it was too early. Maybe, you know, maybe it's uh, something that the society of the country didn't prepare themselves right to engage and to integrate black Jews in Israel. Maybe we did it too fast like any other thing in implementation of the state of Israel. Everything was so fast that no one really put an intention or was minded on educating and talking even and having even a confession of... Uh, Jew by color. You know, we don't even have this conversation in Israel. Jew by color, Jew by culture. We don't have those kind of uh, conversations in Israel. Maybe this is the time for us to speak about it. What is to be a Jew? And how many differences of being Jew can be there? And it's okay also to have black Jew and don't look at them different. I think this is like the major part of it. And when we have Shlichim all over the world working for the Jewish Agency and they're facing those questions of BDS and you know, anti-Israel, and people on the campus ask them, tell them that Israel is a racist country, like the case of Salmonteca and others. And and it's very challenging for them to stand there and support what they do or support Israel when cases like that happening. And I usually tell them that, first of all, as I said before, it's a very complicated country when almost every third person in this country is a new immigrant by themselves. So you will assume, or will you hope, that because of our diversity, because we're all so different than others, we will appreciate other right? but we're not. It actually makes it much more hard for us and much more complicated, and it's easier for us to put people in boxes and see them in the box they're supposed to be. So for many people here, it's easier to put me and my, you know, my friends from my community to put us all in one box, which is the Ethiopian box, which is probably immigrant. We always be immigrant, probably not educated, probably not cultural, probably you know, doesn't have any values, etc., because we're coming from Africa. And that's it, and just easy. And I think our role today also uh, as part of the community is to challenge that and face it and actually to take this and say, we're not not giving up. We're fighting this back. And if my role or my my mission in this world will be to challenge the people around me at work, at the neighborhood, the city I live, the school my kids are, challenge the people around me and face the face it that they need to embrace this color and understand it's part of my identity. So let it be. I mean, that's what we need to do. And not just go, uh, you know, it's easy to go to the place that it's just racist and leave it and and walk away. But I think the more challenging and more important part of it is to really face it, discuss and talk about it. And not only with maker, I think in every daily base and average life of, People
0: in the society. Nina, thank you so much. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you for joining us on AJC Passport.
1: You're welcome.
0: It's hard to imagine a more distinguished diplomatic career than that of Ambassador Bilahari Kausakin. Among other appointments, Bilahari served as Singapore's ambassador to Russia, the United Nations, and as ambassador-at-large and permanent secretary in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Today, he is chairman of the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute. This year marks the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations between Singapore and Israel, so we caught up with Bilahari to discuss this milestone and more. Bilahari, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Steffi, it's my pleasure. Good morning to you. It's morning in Singapore. I guess it's night in New York. (laughs) Uh,
0: That's right. Um, Now, I was hoping that we could start kind of at the very beginning of the relations between Israel and Singapore. I understand that there was actually quite a fascinating um, genesis to that relationship. Can you take us back to, I think, the 1960s? Okay.
2: Okay. You have to start from the understanding that Singapore was never intended to be an independent country. We did not think we could survive as an independent country, so we sought independence uh, within Malaysia. However, that didn't work out for a variety of reasons that I need not go into. And on 9th August 1965, we found ourselves unexpectedly independent and in a rather desperate situation. Our neighbors were not particularly friendly to us at that time and among the many things we needed was quickly to build a defense capability. The entire might of the Singapore Armed Forces at that time were two rather poorly equipped infantry battalions and to our horror we found that the majority of the soldiers were Malaysians and of course went back to Malaysia. So we were in a desperate situation. We asked many countries to help us build an armed force, and they all turned us down for very good reasons. They did not think we would survive. However, in the end, it was only Israel that agreed, on very short notice and very quickly, to help us build an armed force. And that is the beginning, the genesis, of the very close relationship that Singapore and Israel have today. And we today celebrate, this year we celebrate, the 50th anniversary of diplomatic relations between Israel and Singapore.
0: It's such a fascinating relationship that has existed for now half a century, as as you note. You know, it's, it's interesting to think that Singapore is geologically an island, Israel is not. Um, but both kind of at their genesis in the origin— were islands, uh, geopolitically islands, if not geologically, and both kind of, you know had independence thrust upon them in, in somewhat of an abrupt way. And it's amazing to hear the story of Israel and Singapore getting together and recognizing that there are things that they could learn from one another. You know it, it went in one direction with Israel helping Singapore set up its armed forces back in 65. But ever since the relationship has really been mutually beneficial, right?
2: It has been more than mutually beneficial. I think it is one of our most important relationships. And I like to think that we are at least one of the most important relationships that Israel has in Asia. In fact, I would go so far as to dare to say that there is no other Asian country with which Israel enjoys a a closer relationship than Singapore today. Of course, while the genesis of the relationship was in defense and security, the relationship has
0: broadened far beyond that today. What today are the main areas of cooperation between the two countries?
2: I think we do a lot of research and development together. Increasingly, we are doing, uh, there are increasing educational ties. I visit Israel quite often, a couple of times a year at least, for the last few years. Uh, and I've been visiting Israel for some 20 years. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I came across, quite by chance, a fairly large group of Singapore university students who were uh, uh, studying in Israel on internships. And I got to chatting with them, and they thoroughly enjoyed themselves. I think people have to visit Israel to understand it. Too many people in my part of the world get their news on the Middle East and on Israel uh, from uh, the media. And if you only read the media, you think that there is a perpetual conflict. Of course, there are conflicts, but not just conflicts. You know, as you know better than I, Israel is a very vibrant, dynamic, creative society. And that needs to be better known in this part of the world. The Singapore students I met had a thoroughly new experience. They enjoyed themselves because they were thrown in the deep end into internships in Israeli startups and they were given important tasks from the beginning. And I like to think that they met the challenge and they learned a lot from it. Uh, We also do a lot of research and development in various domains together, not all of which I can talk about, but uh, it's a broad-based, strong relationship. Of course, we don't always agree with everything. We have 17% or so of our population is Muslim, and for reasons that are not entirely logical, uh, Muslim identity in Southeast Asia generally uh, defines itself partly, at least, perhaps too much by the position uh, they take on uh, Israel-Palestine relations, which of course has got nothing to do with religion. It's fundamentally a conflict of nationalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's a political reality we can't ignore. But I think Israel understands this, has been very understanding of our position, uh, and has been very careful Uh, To help us in this regard.
0: I have to say, you know, you you mentioned that that there's no country in Asia with which Israel has a closer relationship than Singapore. And I I would just say, if anything, that reflects well on on Israel, that it has such wisdom in choosing its friends. Singapore, of course, is known for being a country that punches well above its weight. You
2: know, Steph, Steph, if I may interrupt you, uh, I often joke with my Israeli friends, you know, that It was utterly illogical for Israel to help us back in 1965. Uh, Because, in fact, those who refused help to us were being logical. But I, at least, and people of my generation who remember that, are profoundly grateful that Israel acted illogically at that time. And that is the basis of our strong and enduring relationship.
0: Billahari, let me ask you, um, I think it was in 2016, the prime ministers of Singapore and Israel each made visits to the other country. Um, how significant were those visits? Did that represent the start of a new chapter in the Singaporean-Israel relationship?
2: Well, yes and no. Yes, because this was the first visit by a Singapore prime minister to Israel. And what was, to me, most remarkable about the visit is that nothing much happened uh, yeah. with to be our neighbours. You know? Ah, interesting. Uh, that's very significant, I think. Now, that's not to say that the sensitivities uh, have gone away or have disappeared entirely. For totally illogical reasons, Israel is not the most popular country in our northern neighbor, Malaysia, and there are still uh, political sensitivities uh, in our southern neighbor. But I think we have come a long way from, let us say, the late 1980s. I can't remember the exact date offhand, when then-President Herzog visited Singapore and all hell broke loose. Hmm. What What happened then? What happened? I mean, our neighbors, uh, particularly our northern neighbor, acted as if, you know, we had seduced their daughter or something and got <laughs> her pregnant, you know? <laughs>
0: Well, let me ask you this: You mentioned the 17% Muslim minority in Singapore, and and how maybe public opinion among that sector of society has been perhaps an obstacle to deepening ties. Um, but there are actually, you know, across the Middle East, there are kind of quietly warming ties between Israel and several Muslim countries, like um, like Saudi Arabia, like uh, like the Gulf countries. There are these rapidly shifting dynamics in the Middle East as countries kind of draw up sides. Either on kind of the Saudi-Israel, you know, Sunni side of the equation, um, or on the Iranian Shia side of the equation, Um, do you foresee any?
2: I am aware of that, and it is a positive development both for Israel itself, and I think in the longer term for uh, Singapore-Israel relations.
0: Well, do you? you Don't get me wrong. Okay.
2: No, don't get me wrong. The sensitivities of our Muslim population is a political reality that we cannot ignore, as is the position that our northern and southern neighbours, Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, have taken uh, towards Israel, at least publicly, in the case of Indonesia. But it has not been an obstacle to the development of Singapore-Israel relations. We will not let it be an obstacle to the development of singapore Israel relations. It is only a factor that we cannot ignore. And I think Israel understands this. Mm-hmm. Now, the, uh, the improvement in relations between Israel and uh, some of the Gulf states is a very good thing. But I don't think it is uh, very well known uh, in this part of the world, or at least insufficiently well known. Let me give you an example. In fact, you know, you would be uh, amazed at the um, lack of factual information about what's happening in Israel's neighborhood. Last year, on one of my periodic visits to Israel, I popped across to Ramallah. And having met some Palestinian friends of mine, I went to have lunch in a small town not far from Ramallah called Taipei. And you may know that Taipei, among other things, is famous for an excellent beer. <laughs> and I love beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So I posted a picture of me drinking Thai Bay beer on my Facebook page uh, with the caption that this was on the West Bank. And some friends of mine, not just in Singapore, in fact, not in Singapore, but uh, across the border, said, how can you be drinking beer on the West Bank? It's a Muslim country. I said, my dear friends, do you know that a substantial amount of the Palestinian population on the West Bank is actually Christian? Apparently, they didn't know. So that's the level of ignorance you have to cope with, you know? Yeah, wow. <laughs> Just because these people are extremely interested in the Palestinian issue does not mean they know a lot about it.
0: Indeed. Another area where that doubtless comes up is uh, in the United Nations. And of course, you um, did a tour of duty as Singapore's ambassador to the U.N. Um, Can you tell us about some of the issues? uh, You know, the Jewish community in America is often concerned with the way that Israel is treated in the U.N. Do you think that that kind of poor reputation that the United Nations earns vis-a-vis Israel, uh, is that merited or is that not fair to, to the U.N.?
2: No, look, uh, of course it's not fair. You know, Uh, the UN is a world in itself uh, which is only obliquely on many issues connected with reality. That is the fact that you have to accept for having a UN uh, of any kind. (laughs) Now, Singapore has, from the Palestinian point of view, an almost perfect record of supporting Palestinian resolutions. And we do this as one of the means for managing the sensitivities with our neighbours. However, there are two red lines, or three red lines, that we will not cross, and we have never crossed. One is that we will never support anything in the UN or elsewhere, for example, in the non-aligned movement, that questions the right of Israel to exist as a nation. Secondly, we will not support anything that equates Zionism with racism, though fortunately that is no longer a very big issue in the UN. Mm. And thirdly, we will not support anything that kind of equates Israel's right to self-defense with war crimes. These are the three red lines we will never cross and we have not crossed. But otherwise, we have to use the UN and support for UN resolutions as a means of managing the sensitivities. And I think Israeli leaders by and large understand this and in fact i think even israel's arab neighbors at least in the gulf understand this let me tell you a story some years ago before i retired from the foreign ministry i was conducting bilateral discussions with a gulf state that shall remain nameless i traveled there and i woke up this morning to find out that operation cast lead had begun mm. And I said to myself, oh gosh, I'm going to get a year full from my counterpart. <laughs> I did indeed get a year full, but only for five minutes of about an hour long meeting. The rest of the time he spent telling me that the real threat was the Shia. Uh-huh. And as I left the meeting, he whispered in my ear, tell your friends not to wait too long,
0: huh.
2: you know, vis a vis Iran. Wow. And I don't think he was talking about America.
0: Wow, that is, uh, that's truly a remarkable story. Um, just before we close, Bilahari, I want to shift uh, over to learn a little bit about um, the Jewish community in Singapore. There's been a small Jewish community there since uh, long before the country's independence. Um, and there's also a thriving community of expats, uh, people who are there on, on business and the like. Um, yeah. I, I guess what I'm wondering first is, you know, is there any anti-Semitism in Singapore?
2: That's a question you should really ask our Jewish community, but I, can, I dare say there is none. And I dare say if you ask them, they will give you the same answer. You know, our first chief minister, when we were internally self-governing but not yet fully independent, was a Jew, Mr. David Marshall. He, of course, anglicized his name, but he was his origins is an Iraqi Jew, as are almost all the indigenous Jewish community from in Asia.
0: Can you tell us uh, a bit more about the role that the community or or members of the community um, has played uh, historically um, and and what role maybe it plays today in leading Singapore?
2: Well, I told you our first chief minister was Mr. David Marshall, was Jewish. Uh, He subsequently served for many years and very distinguishedly as our ambassador to Paris. Uh, The Jewish community in Singapore, they remain Jewish in their observances and practices, but they are fully integrated into the community. They are very valued members of the community. And I don't think people think of them as Jewish or not Jewish. They think of them as fellow Singaporeans. And they play the role that all Singaporeans play. You know, they are in business, they are in the government, they serve in our armed forces, as all male Singaporeans do, which is one of the things we learn from Israel. And they are Singaporeans, but they remain Jewish.
0: Well, that is all truly fascinating, Dilahari. Thank you for sharing with us uh, some of your knowledge, uh, a small sliver of your knowledge um, about Singapore-Israel relations and about the Jewish community in Singapore. Um, You've certainly piqued my interest, and I'm sure the same can be said for our audience as well.
2: Come
0: and visit us. <laughs> well, uh, folks listening at home, you have an open invitation now from uh, Mr. Ambassador Bilahari Kausaken to come visit Singapore. And I-, I hope that many of my listeners take you up on it. Bilahari, thank you so much for uh, joining us today.
2: Oh, it's a pleasure, Steffi.
0: Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews, where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Remembering the Holocaust. Good for the Jews? From time to time, there's this hot take that comes up in one or another Jewish publication that makes the dubious case that the Jewish community has put too much emphasis on remembering the Holocaust and argues that rising generations are being traumatized unnecessarily. These arguments are never especially convincing, particularly as we see signs of resurgent anti-Semitism and as data indicates that knowledge about the Holocaust is fading significantly among millennials. Now this. It came to light in the past week that last year a high school principal in Florida named William Latson told a parent that he couldn't work with her to help expand the Holocaust education offerings provided by the school because, quote, not everyone believes the Holocaust happened. When the parent, undoubtedly shocked, followed up to remind Principal Latsen that the Nazi murder of six million Jews in Europe was, as she put it, a factual historical event, Latsen stuck to his guns saying, quote, you have your thoughts But we are a public school, and not all of our parents have the same beliefs. Now, after a year of fighting, Latson is no longer the principal of Spanish River Community High School. He has been reassigned in the district and may ultimately be fired. As violent anti-Semitism reoccurs in the U.S., Latin America, and across Europe, basically everywhere that Jews live, we cannot allow the memory of the Holocaust to fade. Even as the last survivors pass away, it is up to the Jewish people to remind the world what can happen when state-sanctioned hatred becomes policy put into practice. Remembering the Holocaust is crucial for ensuring the continued humanity of people around the world, and it certainly is good for the Jews. You can subscribe to AJC Passport on iTunes or on Stitcher, follow us on SoundCloud, or learn more at ajc.org passport. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at passport at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC, the American Jewish Committee. Our producer is Kukang Doe. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of AJC Passport.